Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Wednesday, December 20th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Folks, it's hard to believe that there are only four days left until Christmas Eve. And while the rest of the world will quickly cast aside the whole Christmas holiday in less than a week, you faithful out there know that Christmas is just beginning. And our hymn for this morning is for you and for believers everywhere. It's a beloved Christmas carol that invites people to come and adore the newborn Christ. Each verse conveys a message of praise and adoration and worship, drawing from what the Bible has revealed about the nativity of our Savior. Yes, friends, turn in your Lutheran service books to page 379, O Come, All Ye Faithful. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Head over to their website, lhfmissions.org, to learn more about how they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel of Jesus throughout the world through their translating and their publishing work. Their website, again, is lhfmissions.org. Well, not only am I live this morning, but I am also without a guest. That's right. I'm going solo, folks. So feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 1-800-730-2727. You can also email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on Facebook. Oh, and by the way, if you want to follow KFUO on social media, you can, whether on Facebook or Instagram or X, just look for at KFUO Radio. Well, for every episode, I've been asking our guests what their favorite Christmas or Advent hymn is, so I might as well answer that for myself. Now, if you've been listening, you may already know that my least favorite Christmas hymn is Go Tell It on the Mountain. Now, I don't know why people are like, well, why don't you like it? I have no idea. It's just not a favorite of mine. But I will tell you my favorite Advent hymn and I've also said this on the show too, is by far, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Rich with hope and promise for the coming of the Christ child, you know, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel draws from the prophecy of Scripture and points to the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises. Any hymn that points me to the fulfilled promises of God gives me hope for the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Now, if I had to pick a favorite Christmas, Christmas-specific hymn, that is, I would probably say, Oh, Holy Night. I think that's what I would say. Now, we won't be covering Oh, Holy Night during this series, but I just like the dynamic range of the hymn. It adds drama to the message in a way that always makes me ponder the miracle of Jesus' birth. Well, anyway, you don't want to hear me prattle on about myself, so let's uh, open our study this morning with a prayer. Dearest Jesus, In just a few days, Christians around the globe will gather in their various houses of worship to celebrate your miraculous birth in Bethlehem. This season fills our hearts with gratitude for your first arrival as a child, God clothed in human flesh, and it gives us a joyful hope as we anticipate your return. As we prepare to commemorate this momentous event in history, may our gatherings resound with joyful praises and heartfelt gratitude. Today, for myself and for the listeners, we ask that you guide our reflections on the hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, deepening our understanding of its message and connecting our hearts more closely to the wonder of your birth. May its verses inspire us with a renewed faith 
and a profound sense of adoration for the miracle of your incarnation. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, folks. Now, our hymn today, as I've already said, is LSB 379, O Come All Ye Faithful. Now, you may know this hymn by its original Latin title, Adeste Fidelis, which means come faithful ones. But as I was digging in, trying to figure out the origins of this hymn, there's a lot of information out there, and a lot of it is shrouded in mystery and intrigue and even a little political controversy. So that's a pretty exciting hymn. The earliest known manuscript of Adeste Fidelis dates back to 1743, and it was penned by an English Catholic musician named John Francis Wade. Now, Wade was actually living in exile in France because he and a bunch of other English Catholics uh, fled after their homeland was, um, well, okay, so their homeland, you have to understand, the Catholics were living in a place where the Anglican Church had taken over, and there was a uh, an uprising, the Jacobite uprising of 1745, and that rebellion tried to restore the Catholic Stuart dynasty to the throne of England and Scotland and Ireland against the Protestant uh, Hanoverian rulers. So he's among those who are living in exile in France. So that sort of sets the scene behind it. Now, here's where the story gets a little intriguing. Some historians have speculated that Wade's hymn was actually a coded message of support for the Jacobite cause, and that when he says, Oh, come all ye faithful, the faithful ones he was calling to come weren't Christians celebrating the birth of Christ, but the loyalists ready to fight for their king. Now, I don't know about that. I mean, it would make for an interesting plot in a Dan Brown-style thriller, but the evidence for this theory is not very strong, but I do I added it because I think it does give us another intriguing layer of meaning to the hymn. Either way, in time, O Come All Ye Faithful became popular across Catholic Europe. It was known as the Portuguese hymn in England, and that's because, well, it was sung at the Portuguese Embassy Chapel in London. And there, Latin hymns were tolerated by the Anglican authorities. So you understand this is a time of great discord. But over the years, it was also mistakenly attributed to all kinds of different authors. Uh, some people said it was King John the Fourth of Portugal who wrote it, um, or just some anonymous uh, Cistercian monks. It wasn't really until 1841 that the hymn was translated into English by Frederick Oakley. He's an Anglican priest who later converted to Catholicism. He's the one who gave the hymn the name we know it by today, O Come, All Ye Faithful. He removed any possible Jacobite references, um, and he added some verses that aren't in the original Latin version, such as, Sing choirs of angels and, Yea, Lord, we greet thee. Since then, this hymn has become a Christmas classic, though, sung by millions of people around the world and in many different languages and versions. It's been recorded by artists such as Bing Crosby and Mariah Carey, uh, Elvis Presley, Pentonix. It, it even has been featured in movies, right? It's in Home Alone, Harry Potter, and the Philosopher's Stone. So no matter how many times we hear it or how many times we sing it, this hymn really does retain its original message of joy and hope and faith, and it invites us to come and adore the newborn king who is the savior of the world. 
I like this hymn because it reminds us of the true message of Christmas and why we celebrate it. So let's jump into the actual text in our Lutheran service books. Now, in those hymnals, you're going to find four verses and a refrain. As I was looking over the internet, I found lots of different versions, but uh, I'll introduce a couple of those verses that are omitted in ours in just a minute. But we'll just start with the first one in our hymnal, and it goes, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Then the refrain, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Well, fights between popes and kings and Anglicans and Catholics and Jacobite rebellions and secret messages, all of that aside, this carol starts off simple enough. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Ye, by the way, in case you don't know, is just the second person plural. So it's y'all or you, but plural. So, O come y'all to Bethlehem. That's, that's what it's saying. So this opening line is a call for all faithful followers of Christ to come in a spirit of joy and triumph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. So this whole first verse really, to me, recalls the first time that people were summoned to Bethlehem, because that's what it is. It's a summoning of the faithful to come and see the Christ child. And the first time that happened is out in those fields with the shepherds. And one thing I've noticed, and it makes sense because we've been doing a series on Christmas hymns, but we really haven't left Luke chapter 2 since we began this series. But anyway, let's look again at the angels summoning the shepherds, telling them to, O come, all ye faithful, to Bethlehem. This is Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. Now, that's, of course, the first summoning, the angels appearing Right, Come and behold him, born the king of us, they say, the king of angels, according to this hymn, O come all ye faithful. But what does it mean 
to come to Bethlehem in 2023 or 2024, as it will soon be, right? If this is a message to us, right? And I know it's not the Bible, but still the Bible's message is the same. It's always a call, a plea to those who have faith to come to Christ. So what does it mean for us as the faithful to come? It certainly isn't calling for us to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, although in more peaceful times over there, I'd love to do just that. No, for us to come to Bethlehem, well, look at the hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. We have to be invited. You know, the world, the world is so quick to reject the Christmas message because They want to reject that angels can appear in the sky and that God can be born as a child. And so God uses us, uses his word to go out and invite people to Bethlehem, right? So we come to Bethlehem by invitation. The Lord calls us. And the good news, as I've already said, is the Lord calls everyone. But he does his calling through the scriptures and through saints like you and me. So looking at this, looking at the angels, the whole situation, what do we have? This angel, this angelos in Greek or malak in Hebrew, it just means messenger. Now, now the creatures that angels are are certainly not mere messengers, but they do deliver the message of the hymn to the shepherds. Oh, come, all ye faithful. But then what did the shepherds do? Well, they go and then they pick up the message and they carry it forward, right? We, heard, we just heard from Luke about how they go and they tell everybody about what they'd seen and heard. Friends, you and I are called into God's family by faith. He invites us. We cannot and we do not search for God or understand him according to our fallen human natures. We know that from the scriptures, right? The natural person cannot accept the things of God. The small catechism tells us that we must be called by the Holy Spirit. He must call us. But take cheer because he has called you. Oh, come all ye faithful. That's you. And overall, the verse, you know, of calling faithful followers of Jesus to come and joyfully and triumphantly worship Jesus, worship him in spirit and truth for who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why we celebrate Christmas, to be gathered by God around his gifts and to recall that he is a God who keeps his promises. So we look at that text just one more time. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. How is it that we can come joyfully into God's presence? Well, if we were still in our sinful human natures, we would not be joyful or triumphant. We would be, well, fearful and eternally damned. But the call to come all ye faithful is a call to those whose faith, hope, and trust is in this infant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, to the shepherds that meant literally pick up and go, but to us it means go to where we can find Christ. Martin Luther once said that the Bible is the manger in which Christ is laid, and, and that's where we can find him, not, not in the, uh, the, the creche, which is under your tree or out in the lawn, but rather we find him in the scriptures. Come and behold him, the hymnist says, born the king of angels. What a beautiful message as we start out this hymn. Let's go into the second verse. Now, there's only four, although, as I said earlier, there are other versions out there. I'll be getting to some of those omitted verses soon. But let's head into stanza two or verse two. Highest, most holy, light of light eternal, 
born of a virgin, a mortal he comes, son of the father, now in flesh appearing. And then, of course, we get that refrain, uh, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So we look here and we see in the second stanza that it begins with uh, talking about the nature of God. But not just the nature of God, but the nature of this child who's been born to this virgin. So, you know, if he is does things that God can only do, he has characteristics only attributed to God, then he's God. And that's what's being confessed here. Highest, most holy, light of light eternal, born of a virgin, a mortal he comes. Think back. Think back to when the angel Gabriel first appeared to Mary. Now, you'll recall that she's confused by his greeting and wondering how she'll become pregnant since, after all, she's a virgin. Let's listen to that again from the ESV. This is back in Luke chapter 1, the very first chapter, and we'll start with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Pausing there for a moment, you already hear that language, right? He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Picking up with verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Fair question. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs from her. Highest, most holy, we sing. Light of light eternal, born of a virgin, a mortal he comes, son of the Father, now in flesh appearing. So we hear that language, right? The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, the angel says. Highest, most holy. God is outside of time and space. What does it mean that God is highest? What does it mean that God is most holy? Holy meaning set apart. Well, one of the exercises that I like to do with the catechumens or even adults too, if the occasion presents itself, is I like to talk about the the highestness of God, right? So if we were to take a ladder, let's let's say a scale, but let's say a ladder, and at the bottom of the ladder you're going to put like the worst people ever. Uh, you're going to put the the evil dictators of history. You're going to put in there people who were serial uh, 
criminals. You're going to put their people who just were awful, awful people in their in their evil works. Then I usually ask, who do we put at the top? Who's the best that's ever lived? Who's the greatest? Who's who's uh, who's never committed any sins? Right. So so at the very very top of the ladder, who is the best? And of course, everybody wants to put God, Jesus, and that makes sense, right? Because Jesus is a human being, also 100% God. He lived this perfect life. It seems like he would be at the top. He's in creation. But God himself, the triune God, really isn't on the ladder at all. And, and that's sort of the thinking exercise. We tend to think about God being like at the top of this ladder. He's the greatest. He's the best. And, and all that's true. But that still puts God inside of his creation as opposed to outside of it. Now, of course, usually the third step is to say, where would you put yourself on the ladder? And it's funny seeing people argue over who's better or not better than the other. But, but the point is to say that at the top of the scale isn't necessarily God because God isn't even on the scale. To suggest that God's on the scale is to suggest that we can be perfect like God. And this side of Christ's return, that's not possible. So he is the highest, not just on the scale, but he is off the scale. He is, he is eternal. He is what we would call transcendent. Along those same lines, we talk about most holy, most set apart. Now, God, again, is outside of creation. So what I like to do for the kids is I'll, I'll draw a box on the wall and I'll say, okay, inside of this box is everything in creation. What goes in the box? And of course, they'll come up with things, you know, trees and plants, animals, food, their favorite sports. They'll come up with all these things, people. They'll start thinking about the six days of creation, the hexameron. They'll start putting things in there. But then the question comes, okay, well, where does the devil go? Where does Satan go? Inside the box? Yeah, of course he is. He's a creature. He's a fallen angel. Speaking of angels, where do the angels go? In the box. Where do demons go? In the box. What about emotions, love and, and, um, and anger and all that kind of stuff in the box? It's all part of God's creation. Where does God go? He's not in the box. He's not in the box. He's outside of it. He's transcendent. Time itself, the universe, space, that's in the box. God is outside the box. That's what it means to be most holy, most set apart. And so when Christ comes, he is the highest most holy, set apart, not, com- not in creation at all, completely outside of time and space, but God has deigned to come and be born as one of us. That's the scandal. Born of a virgin, a mortal he comes. And then even saying son of the father is something that would have been completely scandalous during that time. Sometimes we've taken God We've taken his majesty, his transcendence, his otherworldliness, and to borrow a phrase from an author, we've domesticated him. We've taken God and we've, we sort of just keep him in our pocket. He's our pocket super, superhero that we pull out whenever we need something. But that's not how God should be treated, and it's certainly not who God is. God is wholly other. He knows all things. He's as close to the end of time as he is to the beginning of time. And understanding those things, understanding what it means that all of that was condensed into the person of Jesus is to start to get our mind around just how miraculous it was that God decided to be born of a virgin and become a mortal. 
Well, there is a little bit more to come when we come back, but folks, I don't want you to go anywhere. It's just me solo today, and I'm going through the hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. We've just, well, we're actually only a little bit through the second verse. We'll get into it more after the break. So folks, I'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boot, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. I'm solo this morning, but before I jump back into our meditation on 379, O Come, All Ye Faithful, I just wanted to invite you again to reach out if you have any feedback, questions, or comments. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, or you can call into the studio at 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. All right. Well, back to the hymn. And we just started talking about the second verse. Highest, most holy, light of light eternal, born of a virgin, a mortal he comes, son of the father, now in flesh appearing. There's a lot packed in there. I already talked a little bit about what it means for God to be holy other outside of time and space. He's the highest and most holy, off the scale, outside the box. But then we get to light of light eternal. And when we get there, I I can't help but think of Isaiah's prophecy, looking forward to Jesus' coming. He writes in chapter 9, verse 2, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is Isaiah looking forward, looking through time and space as God permitted him to see, to paint this vivid picture of a people who were once in darkness and now encountering this great light. Who is the great light? It's the coming of Christ. He illuminates our world. He brings hope to a world engulfed in spiritual darkness and obscurity. And this really is fleshed out a lot in the Gospel of John. John, in his Gospel, intricately weaves the themes of light versus darkness. He amplifies the significance of of this contrast, because we see this throughout the Scripture, right? He eloquently captures the essence of Christ as the ultimate source of light. I like John 1.9. 
He writes, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming in the world. And then you fast forward to John chapter 8, and Jesus himself is saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Jesus says this. He declares this as a foundational truth. Christ, embracing Christ, following his ways, leads to a life illuminated by his truth, his guidance, and his everlasting grace. So we see here that even this this light breaking the darkness type of language is letting us know that there is more than just a baby being born in Bethlehem, as miraculous as that is, but rather he's going to grow and in and, and wisdom and maturity or, or status and maturity, as the Bible says, and then he will take on our sins. The hymns mentioning then of Christ being born of a virgin, a mortal he comes and ties us to the nature of Christ's birth, which is miraculous, right? His divine incarnation is one that he, it's like God himself, all those amazing things I told you about earlier are now being enrobed in human flesh. We can't even get our minds around that. Son of the Father, now in flesh appearing, that just sort of encapsulates the profound mystery of the Son of God taking on our human flesh. But this whole idea, he's the light of light. He's taking on human flesh. He's becoming one of us. We have the advantage of having a Christ, a Savior, a Lord, who is not distant, who's not out in the universe just toying with us or worse, not caring about us at all. But he is one who deigned to become one of us, a light breaking the darkness. And I also think that Christmas being in winter is really appropriate. All the arguments over exactly when Jesus was born aside, and there are good arguments for and against even a Christmas birth, but winter is just the darkest time of year. It is for us anyway. And it's so important to be in the sun for good mental and physical health. I remember when I first moved to Minnesota, and it was up when I was in northern Minnesota, but it gets really dark in the winter. And my very first visit to the doctor, he prescribed me without, without any blood test, vitamin D right away, just automatically. He says, everyone who moves here, I give them vitamin D. Now, you guys can debate over that's a good medical practice or not. But the reason why he did it is because of the lack of light. We need what the light of the sun gives to be healthy. And so it's so much more true when it comes to our spiritual health. If we stay out of God's word, if we avoid worship, if we're not fellowshipping with other Christians, if we're not taking God's gifts in the Lord's Supper when he offers them, this is like spending your life hiding from the sunshine in a basement. You might survive, but you certainly aren't thriving. And for those who have trouble, you know, attending worship, well, then that's why it's important that pastors and the church reach out to those dear Christians because they desire that fellowship. They desire to be in the light of Christ's word and sacrament just like anybody else. So we need that light of light eternal like we sing in this hymn. So as I said before, Jesus is the holy son of God who is of most high above all creation. Yet he chooses to be born into a humble human form, born in that very miraculous way. Well, Matthew 1, 23 is where my mind goes. Of course, his mind is going to Isaiah 7, 14, because he's recalling Isaiah's prophecy when he writes, The virgin will conceive 
and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew reminds us means God is with us. That's what Christmas is all about. Though completely divine, Jesus took on morality, I'm sorry, mortality. He took on humanity, and then he was born of the virgin mother. He chose to dwell among us to become the God-man. Now, we talk about these things, we sing about these things so casually, yet as I said, it was a scandal to the people of the time. We talked about this on yesterday's program. And one thing I don't know that we mentioned is that it continues to be a scandal today to those who refuse to believe. So counterculturally, we sing born of a virgin. We proclaim that he's son of God, the father, that he has taken on our flesh and not just our flesh, but he grows to face the same struggles and temptations known to all men. When we sing those things, we are singing and confessing things that the world that's still in bondage to sin cannot believe without the Holy Spirit's help. And as the Holy Spirit lays this message on the hearts of people through our witness, through the proclamation of the Bible, some people refuse it. And that's, of course, something we lament, but that's our goal. That's what Christmas is about. When it's obscured by all the secularization that's gone on, it loses the, the scandal, the message. So singing words like these, singing words of born of a virgin, son of God, can only be done honestly in faith. And it's our faith which gives us access to God, hence the, oh, come all ye faithful. Without faith, Jesus is just another baby born in history. But by faith, we can see that this baby is our Savior. Now, incidentally, verse 2 also appears to reflect what we confess in the Nicene Creed. In fact, it's, it's almost kind of a paraphrase a little bit. I'm going to read the second article of the Nicene Creed, or at least some of it. Uh, we confess, and I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. Here we go. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was crucified for us, etc., etc., that's what we have in this, in this stanza. Highest, most holy, light of light eternal, born of a virgin, immortal he comes, son of the father, now in flesh appearing. So the second stanza is connecting not only the call of Christians to all worship Christ, but it's connecting us to the earliest church. You know, it's connecting us to the church of history, that, that we are all brought together in unity through our same say confession in Christ. Let's move in to stanza three. Stanza three goes, Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above, glory to God in the highest. Then, of course, that refrain picks up, and I won't say the whole thing, but the refrain uh, tells us, uh, Oh, come, let us adore him, right? Three or four times. Back to that stanza, though. There we go. I found it again. <laughs> Our attention returns to the choirs of angels, right? Sing choirs of angels. Sing in exultations. The angels are in the sky over those fields where the shepherds were tending their flocks by night. 
sing choirs of angels, but then it invites the faithful to join. Right? Sing choirs of angels, but then it says, sing all ye citizens of heaven above. And sing what? Well, the song of angels from Luke chapter 2, 14. We've already heard it once. Let's hear it again. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now notice that peace doesn't extend to all people, but rather is with those with whom he is pleased. There will be, unfortunately, until Christ returns, people who will harden their hearts against Christ, that, God, that people who will reject the gift of Christ. This doesn't mean that God has already discounted people. It's just a statement of the reality that there are those who will reject God to the end. And if you reject God, then you don't have peace. Now, the angels set the example for us, though, right? They come and they sing, but they're erupting in this joyous praise as they announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds. It's not just the, the content of the message they want to transmit, right? They're not just there to say, oh, and by the way, the Messiah finally come, yada, yada, yada. No, they want to show us how we should respond, not with fear, not with anxiety, like, oh my goodness, now that the Christ has come, the Messiah has come, I, I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen. He doesn't, that's not how we're to feel. We're to have joy. The appropriate response to the incarnation is this jubilant praise. Why? Because God is reconciling humanity to himself. John 3.16 says, and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' coming at Christmas is a time for celebration, which is why we do Christmas. But Advent, leading up to Christmas, is supposed to get us into the mindset of those who had been waiting for the Christ to come all those centuries. That's why Advent is a penitential season. We reflect on our sins. We reflect on, on, on basically the corruption of the world that you know, called for the need for a Savior. But we also wait in anticipation. We don't celebrate yet. This is why some of my pastor friends, you know, uh, they don't even want Christmas decorations up before Christmas Eve. And it's not because they're sticklers. It's because they want you to experience what the season is designed to experience. And that is we're waiting. You know, no Christmas lights, no Christmas carols, no hallelujahs, just waiting patiently waiting, examining ourselves and our need for a savior so that when Christmas day comes, we burst into jubilant rejoicing and song, just like the angels did for the shepherds. And well, you know, we know that even in the church, Christmas has slipped into the Advent season. In some ways, it's become a, a pre-Christmas, not in terms of waiting for Christmas, but just sort of extra Christmas. And after all, that seems to be the schedule that the world is on. But that shouldn't be the case for Christians. I encourage you this Advent, you know, reflect. It's just a few days left, but reflect on your sins. Reflect on the sinfulness of the world, and that will make the coming of Christ all the more sweeter. It's also why we preach in that law, then gospel format, right? We, we first examine ourselves according to God's law, and then we are comforted with the gospel. And then, of course, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we turn away from our sins. Well, Christmas is a time for us to celebrate that Christ came to save us from our sins. 
So let's look at the celebration we find in the scriptures. I, I just take us to Psalm 148. There's so many, right? How many times does God's people burst into song? How many times does God's people play the lyre, play drums, play everything to praise their Lord? Psalm 148 says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. So there we go. Sing choirs of angels, the hymn goes, sing in exaltation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above, glory to God in the highest. Now, let's talk a little bit about that middle line. Sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. What does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean to be citizens of heaven above? In fact, who is that even talking to? Sorry, I had to cough there. If we look at sing choirs of angels, it's it's the angels, sing in exultation, and then it says sing all ye citizens of heaven above, and one might be tempted to think, oh, well, that's referring to the angels, right? They're in heaven above. And uh, they're citizens of heaven, <laughs> but, but it's not. It, as I already mentioned, it's talking about you. It's talking about the faithful. Christians have a status as dual citizens in this world. We are citizens of both God's eternal kingdom, right? We are citizens of heaven above. That is our home if we understand it as uh, you know, a, a metaphor for the new heavens and the new earth that Christ will eventually bring in. But that's where our citizenship is, with God, where he is. We are citizens of heaven through faith in Christ. And we're also citizens of, citizens of earthly nations or earthly kingdoms. How do we become a citizen of an earthly kingdom? Well, there's lots of ways. You know, people are born in. I think it's probably the most most common way. Uh, you can um, immigrate to places and become citizens there with various processes. But how is heavenly citizenship established? Well, for that, I'm thinking of Philippians 3. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't establish how we become citizens, but it recognizes that we are. And if we are citizens, then and it's reliant upon Christ, then we are citizens because of the faith that we've been given in Christ. That citizenship is ours already, a free gift. But of course, it's not yet fully realized. In the same way that your sins are forgiven now, but you still struggle with sin. You have overcome temptation now, but temptation still rears its ugly head. And you are victorious over death now. But unless Christ comes first, you still will experience an earthly death. None of those things are affected by the reality that these, these victories that Christ has won for you are yours, but they're just not fully realized. Well, that's the same thing with our citizenship in heaven. We are already citizens of his kingdom, but the kingdom hasn't been ushered in yet. Heavenly citizenship comes from that new spiritual birth. You know, We are adopted into God's family as his children and his heirs. So this is how we get our heavenly citizenship. Let's go to John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
just a couple of uh, little passages from the scripture that talk about something the scriptures frequently point to, and that is that we are in the world, but not of it. We are heavenly citizens. And as heavenly citizens, we live according to God's rules, right? So we adhere to the, the laws of God's kingdom, things like the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, right? I, those things essentially are instructions from God. It's the third use of the law. Certainly, for the first use, we look at the law and we are convicted in our sins. It sends us running to Christ, but then we're saved from our, you know, our sins from by our Savior. And now we look at God's law not as something to reject or something to fear, but something to embrace as how God wants us to live. Jesus himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them in Matthew 5.17. But while we are citizens in heaven, as this hymn sings, right? Sing all ye citizens of heaven above, that's us. We still maintain our earthly citizenship, right? We dutifully serve earthly authorities. We serve our nation and we submit to their leadership or rule, depending on how your form of government is, unless, of course, they directly contravene God's word. Romans 13, very famous for teaching this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we certainly have that tension. But whenever there are times when our responsibilities to our citizenship to God's kingdom and our responsibilities or, or what we're being asked to do in the earthly kingdom conflict, then our heavenly citizenship must always take priority. Acts 5.29, right? We must obey God rather than men. So at Christ's birth, <laughs> getting back to the hymn, the angels are, are praising God for the restoration of humanity's ability to live as heavenly citizens. Let's hear that again. Christ came so that we now can live as heavenly citizenships. We have, through our faith, citizenship in Christ's kingdom, and that's only made possible because of what Christ did on the cross. So you owe your dual citizenship to Christ, and that dual citizenship is for eternity. Well, actually, I shouldn't say it's for eternity because your heavenly citizenship is eternal, whereas your earthly one will fall away. But that's what Christmas is about. Now, before we move into our fourth and final verse, at least the one found in our hymnals, as I said earlier, I found some different versions on the internet, versions that rephrase the lyrics that we know, or they are to different tunes, lots of different tunes. Um, some that have more verses than ours, some had fewer. Uh, here's an example of a verse that our hymnal doesn't have. Child for us sinners, poor and in the manger, fain we embrace thee with awe and love. Who would not love thee, loving us so dearly? Well, I didn't dig into this uh, as much as the others because it's not in our hymnal, but um, it still proclaims a good message, right? Child for us sinners, poor and in the manger, right? It focuses on Jesus. It, it takes our minds to the fact that he left his heavenly heights to become, well, poor in the sense that compared to being the king of the universe and now he's being born in a stable, that's pretty poor, but also poor in the fact that he, he, take, he, didn't, he wasn't born to the wealthy and the powerful and the kings, but rather to Mary, and Joseph in some backwater town, right? He, he comes in this humble way. And of course, the manger is the humblest of ways. 
And what do we do? We embrace him. We all and love him. And then the question, I'm sorry, the, uh, the stanza asks us the question, which is rhetorical, who would not love thee loving us so dearly? I mean, <laughs> that's true, right? We love because Christ first loved us. And when we reflect on all that Christ has really done, then how can you not love him with the great love that he has already shown for you even before, even before you were saved? Right? While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, here's another verse that's not found in ours, which I found elsewhere. It goes, low star-led chieftains, magi, Christ adoring, offer him incense, gold, and myrrh. We to the Christ child bring our heart's oblations. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it references the magi. But, you know, I guess if we were sticklers, we would say that that's epiphany, not Christmas. <laughs> and while that verse would be more home at epiphany than Christmas, the very last stanza for today is probably most appropriate to sing on Christmas Day itself. Here's the last stanza. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be glory given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And then, of course, the refrain. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Of course, this line affirms the joy of celebrating Christ's birth on Christmas Day. But what does it call him? Lord, right? Lord, we greet thee. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's who the angels revealed him to be, if he's who John the baptizer said he was, if he's who the angel Gabriel said he was, and of course by faith we know he is, then that means he is the God of all creation and we owe him our fealty and he is our Lord, not just our Savior. Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel announces this newborn baby's identity, that he is both Savior and Lord, the Messiah. This is why it's important to not only put your faith in Jesus to save you, but also trust him to be the Lord of your life and to guide and direct your ways. The hymn goes, Jesus, to thee be glory given, and isn't that true? I think of when we were doing Exodus a long time ago, right? But if we study Exodus, God is getting glory over the false gods of Egypt through the plagues. God is not going to let his glory be shared by anything other than, well, himself, right? It's his alone. So for the glory to be given to Jesus is a bold proclamation that Jesus is God and not a false God, not a false idol. He is who he says he is. John 1.14 again, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, glory that's full of grace and truth. In the incarnation, the glory of God is revealed in mortal flesh. It's a scandal, but we're so grateful. We get a glimpse of Christ's glory in, in the full grace and truth that comes with his life, death, and resurrection. And so we honor him appropriately. And then this stanza ends, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Well, that's pretty much been the theme of the whole hymn, hasn't it? That the word of God, Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, 
all the ways we can sort of define him. Well, he is now in flesh, and that is why we can trust in him because he came, became one of us, lived that perfect life, and then, of course, that little baby died for our sins but rose again. So this eternal divine word, the second person, the Trinity, it takes on human form, and the stanza beautifully confesses that mystery of the incarnation, God with us. And it encapsulates a gospel truth and a spirit of praise to that newborn Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's truly a happy morning for all the faithful, as it says, right? Yay, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. What a happy morning it is. That's why Christmas is wonderful. That's why the churches are packed on Christmas and Easter. But we shouldn't neglect the Advents and the Lenten seasons. We should remember that Christ came for a purpose to save a sinful world of which we are culpable and we are a part. But we're also blessed to be among his faithful, whom this hymn calls, O come all ye faithful. Folks, thanks for riding along with me today. It's been just me, but it's been a good time. Now, tomorrow is our next to last episode in the countdown. It is LSB 382, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth. The following day, which is Friday, is the very last one, and we're going to be ending with Joy to the World. So that's the next two hymns that are coming up. Again, I'm so blessed to have you listeners out there. I'm thankful to our uh, all of our guests. I'm thankful to the guests who couldn't make it today. But just know that I'm praying for you this Christmas and Adventide. May God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray together. Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>